There are two cities mentioned more times than any other cities in the Bible. Jerusalem is mentioned most at more than 800 times. The the first time it appears in Scripture, it's Genesis 14, and the last time it shows up is in Revelation chapter 21. Throughout Scripture, Jerusalem is pictured as a special city, a special place in the plan and purpose of God. In fact, you could say it is the city of God. The root word for the name of the city, Salem, you could pronounce Shalom, makes up the latter part of the name Jerusalem or Salem. Rather woodenly translated, Jerusalem means foundation of peace. It would be correct to imply that this city, Jerusalem, is a place of God's peace. It's certainly the place where our peace with God was established, wasn't it? Paul would write to the Colossians, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. They're just outside the city of Jerusalem. Our Lord hung on the cross to establish for us peace with God. So for the believer, Jerusalem represents the foundation of our peace. Now the city of Jerusalem is experiencing anything but peace, right? You would never refer to or even think of Jerusalem today as as a city of peace, would you? That's because the king is not yet ruling in that city as he will one day according to Revelation chapter 19. In the meantime, you have the growth and the development and the expansion of another city, a city named Babylon that appears more than 300 times in Scripture. In fact, Babylon is mentioned in the Bible more than any other city except Jerusalem. It first appears in Genesis chapter 10, and then throughout Scripture it appears over and over again before it in Revelation 19 is destroyed. Just as there is a city which represents the plan and purposes of God, there is a city that represents the plan and purposes of man. Just as there is a city which is the capital of God's coming kingdom, there is a city that represents the kingdom of this world, Babylon. Now in order to understand the significance of Babylon's rise and fall in the last book of the Bible... We need to go back to its origin in the first book of the Bible. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to spend most of our time doing just that. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis. Some of you have never heard me say that. (laughs) Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. The founder of Babylon was a man by the name of Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter, we know, He was actually a hunter of men, not of animals, but of men, as he made a coalition of those who would defy God. This man would defy the command of God to Noah and his family following the flood. You see at verse 1 of chapter 9 where God is speaking, he blesses Noah and his sons and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and then fill the earth. That is, scatter, go out and fill, subjugate earth, rule it under my uh, direction, enjoy everything I've created and left here for, for you. And by the way, in the same context, 
Noah is given a promise of God concerning what we talked about in our last session, the forces of nature that would literally uh, rewrite, so to speak, the topography of the earth at the flood and then later at the bowls of wrath as the topography is, I believe, returned to pre-flood conditions. But he promises Noah in a verse that we must not overlook, especially in our generation, that water would never flood the entire earth again, but he also promised that the systems of weather and the resources of the planet would sustain life in general. In fact, if you go up just one verse in chapter 8, verse 22, God promises this, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not what? Shall not cease. In other words, for the remainder of earth's duration, that is until until God judges it and Christ creates a new heaven and new earth, Revelation chapter 21. Earth has been given the promise, as it were, that it will experience normal seasons of seed time and harvest, which is going to need rain, the patterns of weather, winter and summer, and the 24-hour cycle of night and day, which means the sun's going to survive and last. You can consider this sort of an addendum to our former discussion in Revelation 16 as we covered the subjects of global warming and global cooling. And I think for every parent, by the way, here who has a child in school, especially in public school, you ought to show them verse 22 of Genesis chapter 8. That God has delivered a promise. We're not going to run out. We're not going to panic. God is in control of the resources of earth. And in this promise to Noah, God promises an ongoing basic balance of natural resources and weather patterns, and even the cycles of seasons. And we here in North Carolina get to enjoy all four of them, right? Those of you moving here from the north have discovered there are more than two. You can go back to this verse and say, well, it says there were only two here, but you know what I mean. Those of you who have moved here understand and enjoy these four seasons and the long season of allergy. (laughs) Allergy season. Well, along comes... The great-grandson of Noah, the world's first tyrant, the first man, so to speak, to collectively, with an empire, shake their fist at God. He's going to build this one world federation of nations, so to speak. But it's more than just political muscle. Uh, it, It was deeply, deeply religious. He would be the founder, along with his wife, Semiramis, specially involved she was, in creating a blasphemous, idolatrous, one-world religion. Now, all of Nimrod's political defiance will be expressed in the building of this city called Babylon. And all of his religious defiance will be expressed in the building of a tower. We know as the Tower of what? The Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babel. Turn over to to Genesis 11 and look at that uh, statement of defiance led by Nimrod. Verse 4, the Bible reads or records, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, 
We will be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. In other words, let's defy God's command to multiply over the face of the earth. And instead, let's, let's stay together. Let's, let's build an empire and let's together defy God. Now, political unity isn't really going to be able to pull that off for very long. Political unity is fickle, isn't it? Republicans can cross the aisle in our own culture and become Democrats. Democrats can cross the aisle and become Republicans. Republicans or Democrats can become independents. Sometimes they vote together. Uh, oftentimes they, they do, and sometimes they vote uh, differently. Not many people that I know, in fact, I've never met anybody that would be willing to risk their life to be a Republican or a, or a Democrat. There are no suicide bombers trying to rid the world of Republicans. At least not yet. But religion now is far different. Religion is far more powerful a unifier. When people unify around a religious cause, they are willing to give their lives to that cause and for that bond of unity with others who believe as they do. And, and when a political cause is married to a religious cause, you've got the makings of a nation. You have the makings of a, of a union that's extremely strong. People will be willing to die for that. And that is observed in history, especially with Hitler and the Nazi Germany system that baptized Nazism into the churches of, of Germany. What happens here with Nimrod is he's able to do that. He marries a political system with a religious system and creates deep unity. In fact, Nimrod will be later deified. He will be considered a god, and in fact, he will become Babylon's chief god, Marduk. It's interesting, in my research uh, this week, Herodotus, the ancient Roman historian, traveled through Babylon and saw one statue of Marduk weighing 22 tons and made of solid gold. Now, when I read that, I tried my best to figure that out, and I couldn't, so I finally called Ewart, our director of finance, and I said, Ewart, can you give me, give me what, this would, what this would be worth on the street today with gold prices in our culture in this day? And he, he finally fired back after just a little bit of figuring. He said, this one statue would be worth more than $600 million. That's commitment. That's zeal. That's sacrifice. Now in the Hebrew text, at chapter 11, verse 4 of Genesis, uh, you read these interesting words. Let's make, let, let's build a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And in my translation, will reach, those words are italicized, which means they're added by the translators to make sense of this particular Hebrew preposition. And I think it actually clouds it some. They weren't trying to build a tower tall enough to reach heaven. They knew you couldn't do that. No, what this is saying is they were building a tower that would represent heaven. You could woodenly translate the preposition, let us build a tower whose top is with heaven. It's an alliance with heaven. The heavens, not the God of heaven. But the universe, in other words, they were building a tower dedicated to the worship of the universe. The first system of worship is worshiping the creation and not the creator. 
More and more in our own culture, thanks to best-selling books like The Secret, which we've talked about in media personalities who promote it, like Oprah Winfrey and others, you have in our generation a growing population of people who are committed to this proposition that the universe exists as a being of power that can give to them whatever they desire in life. So the universe has become effectively a God. Sun, moon, and stars are little gods. They somehow give life and they certainly determine the course of life and destiny. And millions of people today, without knowing uh, the origin of it all, are, are dedicated Babylonians. They believe their sign and the movements of the stars have something to do with their purpose and destiny on earth, don't they? This was the first worship system of Babylon. In fact, the Tower of Babel originated the Zodiac. You turn to any book on astrology written by a believer or unbeliever that traces its history, and it will return you to the original source, which were the Chaldeans, another name for the citizens of Babylon. They divided the heavens into sections, gave meanings to each section based on the stars and constellations they observed, and a person's destiny in life was said to be determined by whatever section or sign he was born under. Well, at the top of this tower, this ziggurat, and there would be many that would be built over generations. Some have been discovered and excavated. It's interesting, at the very top, the top room would be their holy place where they would worship. And in that upper room, the signs of the zodiac they have discovered were emblazoned on the ornate ceilings and the walls at the top of the tower, which represented for them their holiest place where they carried out their sacrifices of religious worship. Now from Babylon, astrology and these systems passed over to the Egyptians where animism and polytheism were added. The pyramids were even constructed with certain mathematical relationships to the stars. These elaborate tombs of the pharaohs were designed to fit into their worship of the sun god and the moon god and the star gods. So the first federation going all the way back to the beginning, this first United Nations, so to speak, was a society built to bring the human race together to exalt man, deify creation, and exclude God. In its very first attempt, not long after the flood where the power of God was so clearly seen, a great-grandson of Noah says, let's defy God. And so they attempted to do that in deifying creation, dethroning God. Or at least they would try. Now Nimrod becomes a prototype of Antichrist who claims himself to be God, deifies himself also in statues. These guys are all in the statues. They will place for him a statue in the holy place of Jerusalem's temple as he declares that he is the living God. One author, by the way, said that the gods of Egypt and Rome and Greece and every other world empire are essentially the gods that grew out of the religious systems of the Babylonian empire, just renamed and a little bit different packaging. Now there is more to the political and religious mystery of Babylon. In Genesis chapter 11, unbelieving humanity is now prepared for anti-God legends and the deifying of mankind, and they fall hook, line, and sinker over the generations into the mystery religions of Babylon that are developing at chapter 11's stage 
of time. John Walford provides this interesting summary, and I quote, Nimrod had a wife. Her name was Semiramis. She created secret religious rites of the Bab- what would become the Babylonian mysteries, according to extra-biblical records. These legends grew that Semiramis had a son conceived miraculously by a sunbeam. He was the promised deliverer of earth, and his name was Tammuz. Now, Tammuz was, in effect, a false fulfillment of the promise made to Eve that a delivery would be born from or through the seed of woman. Women do not have seed, semen. You read in the Bible of the seed of man, but in this promise in Genesis 3.15, it's referring to the seed of a woman, implying in that proto-evangelium, that first gospel, that there would be a virgin-born son from a woman. Well, Satan, early in human history, knew exactly what that meant. And so in the very first religious and political rebellion, he sows the seeds of lies by wrapping them around kernels of truth. He's still doing it today. According to the Babylonian legends then, originating with Semiramis, Tammuz, who was further developed, was killed, and uh, killed by a wild boar. After 40 days of his mother's weeping, he was raised from the dead. And by the way, Satan obviously understood the implication of God's promise to Eve that the Savior would be virgin born. And he obviously listened to the prophets over the course of human history and developing even more of these these religions so they counterfeit the truth of God. Even truth yet to be seen is already counterfeited by Satan, giving the world the impression that the world's counterfeits came first and not Christianity and its gospel. Isn't it striking that the first perverted religious system would center around both deifying the universe along with the idea that God beings would exist and one particular God-man would be born of a virgin. So Mother Samarimus and her God-conceived son, Tammuz, become the first version, the original version of religion wrapped around the Queen of Heaven, and her equally divine son. Now their names are changed in different places, but if you study the history of religions in our world, the basic story remains the same. In Phoenicia, her name is Astarte, and and the virgin-born son of her is named Baal. Sound familiar? Well, the Israelites had trouble with Baal, didn't they? In fact, they would believe the kernel of the promise of God through Eve of a virgin-born son, but they would be led into the counterfeit version following after the sins of this particular religion. In Egypt, she would be called Isis or Isis, and her son would be named Osiris. In Greece, she was Aphrodite, and her son was Eros. In Assyria... The son's name remained Tammuz, but the mother's name was changed to Ishtar, and the religion spread. Both mother and son were considered equally divine in Babylon, and it spread throughout the world, and the liturgy of worship was defined. The mother was soon referred to and appears in Scripture and the prophets uh, many times as the queen of heaven. Her 40 days of weeping become memorialized in the 40 days of Lent, followed by the celebration of his resurrection, the celebration of Ishtar, 
the mother, the queen of heaven, and eggs symbolizing new life are exchanged as presents. Of course, the word Easter is a transliteration of the word Ishtar. In these and other rituals, the Babylonian religion then counterfeits the promise of God that a virgin-born son would come as a deliverer, die, and rise from the grave. Now, while I'm on that, I'm sure questions are raised, which we're not going to get into, but let me at least say this much. There isn't anything wrong with celebrating Easter, as long as you're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That would be a, a key point in your celebration. But he didn't rise from the dead because of his mother's tears, and she isn't co-equal with him. He, he died and rose again because of the plan of God for the redemption of mankind who would believe in his sacrifice. And I'll go even further in saying this. I'm out on a limb, but I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with Easter eggs as long as you don't revere them as the givers of life. There's nothing wrong with eating candy eggs as long as they're chocolate. <laughs> Otherwise, you're wasting your calories and that can't be right. You say, but Ishtar is the name of a pagan god. Well, so are the Nike golf shoes you wear. They're named after a pagan goddess. And she has not helped your golf game one bit, has she? (laughs) Nike is simply the name of a goddess, which means victory. Listen, so long as your faith is bound up in in, in the Savior and not focused on the symbol... You're in good stead. I, I love Martin Luther. I use him as an example. He, he took the paganism surrounding Christmas and a lot of the icons that had developed by then, one of which was the Christmas tree, the evergreen. And he hung from the limbs globed candles. He took the icon and he said, I will give it in my celebration redemptive meaning. And he did that to signify Jesus Christ, the light of the world. We can do that as believers a thousand times over. By the way, let me add this. None of the pagan counterfeits of mother and son has the virgin born dying for the sins of the world and providing forgiveness for sins. The pagan systems of our world merely have another God who's capricious in his actions and proud who cares little of humans. They merely create an anti-creator message And allow man, ultimately, to pursue his sin and be justified in it. In fact, it would be the development of Semiramis, the wife of Nimrod, who began the practice of religious prostitution, marrying sexual sin with religious practice. They called sin now sanctified. And they even founded an order of virgins married to their God, who were anything but chaste, in fact, these virgins, only in name, served as temple prostitutes for those who came to the temple to worship, so-called worship. As you read the history of Israel, you find them time and time again buying into the religion of Babylon, the cult uh, practices of astrology, religious prostitution. Why? Because it was a religion that, that took some of the kernels of truth, but then allowed them to sin. And that is always an attractive religion. In fact, Ezekiel will record God's words of judgment against Israel as they are, Ezekiel says in chapter 8, verse 14, weeping for Tammuz. They're longing for that God. Jeremiah condemns the people for burning sacrifices to, and I quote Jeremiah 44, 17, to the queen of heaven. 
and pouring out their sacrifices to her. You recall the Israelites' infatuation with Baal, just another version of a virgin-born God-man. And and you remember 1 Kings 18 where Elijah called all of them to a contest, and we'll see who the real God is. Now God comes to judge in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, and he comes to judge this federation this one world religion, so to speak, and he confuses their language, which effectively forces them to fulfill his mandate and scatter. They gather by language groups around the far corners of the earth. The Hebrew meaning of the word Babel is confusion. Confusion. The Sumerian language translates Babylon, the gate of God. And by the time the people had scattered, they had experienced this taste of religion, the religion of Babylon, the worship of creation, the synthesizing of sin and sacrifice had burrowed its way into their rebellious hearts, and they, from that day until this day, are still looking for a gateway to God, the God of their choice. You don't have to travel far past Genesis 11 before there is a conflict involving the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem. In fact, the very first war recorded is in Genesis chapter 14. And I'll just for the sake of time review it quickly. Several kings have formed a coalition and they have defeated Sodom. They've carried all the people away as captives to be slaves. One of those abducted people just so happens to be Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. Well, when Abraham, the one who was obeying the covenant of God, hears the news, he and his men mount up and go after this coalition of kings, engage them in battle, and defeat them. One of the kings happens to be the king of Shinar. Uh, That is a name for the region that included Babylon. So here Abraham is fighting against the king of, of Babylon. So you have a battle where Abraham, representing the purposes of God, the covenant promises of God, defeats the king of Babylonia, representing the purposes of man, energized by Satan, the ultimate anti-God. And it gets even more interesting than that, and we don't have any time really to deal with it, so let me just take a a few, few minutes at best. It gets interesting to me because as Abraham is returning from battle, who would come out to meet him but the king and the priest, the same one, king priest of Salem, Shalom. That's old Jerusalem. He's the king and the priest of, of this forerunner to the city of, of Jerusalem. Many believe Melchizedek actually prefigures the king and high priest of Jerusalem who is Jesus Christ. And he, and he comes out and he feeds Abraham and his soldiers bread and wine. Perhaps even in that act, prefiguring the Lord who would give his disciples bread and wine as a memorial of his sacrifice. And Abraham, we're told in that text, without any provocation, without any command, without any revelation at least provided to us, gives to Melchizedek, the king priest of Jerusalem, tithe offerings from the top of the heap, the best that he had, he gives to this man. 
So here you have then the first armed conflict between the forces of Babylon and the forces of Jerusalem. And there in the midst of it is a prefiguring of the soon coming king of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ. And from that point in the Bible, chapter 14, through to the end of the Bible, you have what you could effectively call a tale of two cities. God's city, Jerusalem, and man's city, Babylon, and their continual conflict. And the conflict will only increase between the city of confusion and the city of peace until finally the city of peace wins. By the way, the next time Babylon appears with all of its might is under the rule of a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him? In 2 Kings 24 and 25, this conquering king comes in with three different military campaigns and levels Jerusalem to the ground. He takes the finest of the citizens, brings them back to be raised in Babylon, and one of those young men was Daniel. It will be in the kingdom of Babylon that Daniel will prophesy of the ultimate victory of Jerusalem. And Daniel will prophesy from within the city walls of Babylon that Babylon will be defeated by the Medo-Persians, and they were. The Persians will be defeated by Greece, and they were. And Greece will be defeated by Rome, and they were. And then he will also prophesy that there is coming then a final world empire, these ten toes of this image, ten king coalition that we've been studying in Revelation, And ruled by the Antichrist in this revived Roman Empire. So in other words, what what I'm saying is this. The conflict that began in Genesis will reach its climax in Revelation. And since the Tower of Babel, Satan has been working and scheming to bring men back to Babylon. He wants to pick up the fight between the city of man and the city of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the first war recorded in the Bible involved Jerusalem and Babylon and the last world war will be between Jerusalem and Babylon. The whole course of human history is essentially a tale of these two cities and what all they represent. Human history can be viewed as the attempt by Satan to bring men back to a new Babylon after he failed in Genesis chapter 11 to create a global political order of mankind where every empire answers to one being. Once again, in effect, with this one world religion serving as the glue in this political empire that defies creator God. And is the world ever set for that now? Do people ever look to the universe more than ever to the stars? Any God but the God. It's prepped and ready for the final kingdom. In between Genesis and Revelation, it frankly seems like Satan is winning. As Nimrod appeared on the scene in the first book of the Bible, and the Antichrist appears in the last book of the Bible, just like Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar, the Antichrist builds a statue in his honor. Just like Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar of old Babylon, the king of new Babylon, will demand that everybody worship before the image of his own greatness and the glory of his own empire. And and like both of them, all three will ultimately be defeated in battle. In fact, the last time a conflict occurs between Babylon and Jerusalem, it's called the Battle of Armageddon, 
and Jerusalem wins. In case you were wondering. Now in our past studies, we've unpacked the truth of that battle as the forces of the kings who marched against God were defeated. And the blood, you remember, that flowed from the defeated armies ran like a river through the valley of Jezreel. The bowls of God's judgment are finally emptied and Christ in his glory comes to sit upon the throne of Jerusalem. All right, enough of an introduction. Let's go to Revelation chapter 17 quickly, okay? Revelation chapter 17 It's all wrapping up here. John has been watching the bulls poured out. He's been stupefied, no doubt, at all the sights and sounds of God's judgment. Christ is coming back. Just prior to that, something interesting happens. It's as if an angel pulls John aside and says, hey, let me show you some things. Look at verse one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me saying, come here. I want to show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now what's happening here? As it's already happened several times in the book of Revelation, you'll see events racing across the monitor as you're watching it. It's happening so quickly. What just happened? And then it's like somebody pushes a button and everything stops. And then it's rewound and started over again in slow motion. That's what happens in chapters 17 and 18. Chapter 17 and 18 are a slow motion, in fact, a rewind, where we're shown the details of Babylon, new Babylon. Chapter 17 will show us the religious system of new Babylon and its ultimate demise. Chapter 18 will show us the city, the capital of this empire, new Babylon, and its ultimate destruction. By the way, before we dive in, There is more said about Babylon in the book of Revelation than any other topic or event. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. We're covering 10 a year. Out of the 404, 44 of them have to do with Babylon, which means if you're a mathematician, and I had to use my calculator because I'm not, that's 11%. 11% of the book of Revelation deals with Babylon. In fact, more, there is more attention given to Babylon than the new heaven. And wouldn't you like more information about the new heaven? I would. Why so much information on Babylon as opposed to the new heaven? There's no answer provided. I can only speculate, but I, it came to my mind that perhaps it's because we can't understand much about heaven. But we'd better understand much about Babylon. Because we're in a battle and our own generation against the kingdoms of this world with their philosophies and their religions and their false worship were in that battle today. Now very quickly, I want to give you six characteristics of the system of religious Babylon, system of spiritual false worship. The first thing I want you to notice is her influence, her being this religious system referred to as the harlot. Verse 1 tells us, She sits on many waters, right there at the end of verse 1. Now look across at verse 15, where we're told exactly what that meant. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, there will be the growth of this religious system which will affect 
the world. Now go back to verse 1. I will show you, the latter part, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters that is affecting nations and tongues and peoples. With whom, verse 2, the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now just imagine for a moment the world without any true Christians in it. And I mean true, genuine Christian. Not everybody who calls themselves a Christian. We live in a city filled with people who would say, I'm a Christian. I mean genuine Christians who've come to faith and under the mastery of this one we call our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, just imagine the world without any true Christians. The rapture's taken place and the Christians are gone. Sin will be unleashed throughout the world like never before because the restraining influences of salt and light are gone. Now, we don't know how much time elapses between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation, which begins with the peace treaty of the Antichrist with Israel. But in that lapse of time, there's no gospel. After the, uh, the tribulation begins, the witnesses will traverse planet Earth, 144,000 of them, declaring the gospel, and many will come to faith in Christ. But you have this period of time where the church is gone, no gospel, no salt, no light. Imagine that kind of world. Sin will just come on court. It will go unleashed around the world. And religion, what will happen to it? It will flourish like never before. In fact, the references to Babylon's religious system is pictured with sexually freighted words because God has always considered idolatry and false religion to be spiritual adultery. That is, you're giving your love to somebody else where it truly belongs with, with God. And the world, we're told, is going to be drunk with both sin and idolatry. And think about it. How many religious systems of worship do you think will carry on after the rapture without missing a beat? All of them. All of them. The world is a religious place. And the rapture won't slow them down at all. In fact... I think they'll only increase. There will be Protestant churches who will carry on as if nothing happened. There's staff still on planet Earth, as well as most of the church members. Catholic churches will have their mass as usual. The Mormon church won't miss a service. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Judaism will all continue uninterrupted. Why? The only missing element is the salt of the earth. The genuine believer in Christ who will have been raptured. And the only religious people who, by the way, are, are caring about the Bible. All of a sudden, the people are gone within the religious systems of the world who care about God's word. And, and the only people left are people that really never cared. So the people that are gone are the ones who, in our generation, are, are, are going to denominational meetings saying, we can't do that. The Bible says this. The gospel means that. They're gone. And the missing people are the missionaries, both vocational and, for, and informal, who are testifying. They're the ones saying, hey, wait a second. There aren't many paths to God. There's only one. Jesus Christ is the only way there. They're gone. Now all you have is religion without any gospel. And it will coalesce rapidly with great joy 
Those people are gone, but we're so glad. Now let's get on with what we want to do. When the World Council of Churches, which is just one of many expressions of this desire to coalesce apart from the true revelation of God's Word, when the World Council of Churches was organized in Amsterdam in 1948, one of its aims, it said, was to, and I quote, bring all branches of Christianity, and I use that term loosely, to bring all branches of Christianity together, including Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox churches under one organization. Well, their dreams will come true. The current Pope today who desires unity with Islam and Judaism, his wish will come true. The religions of our world will unite with great joy into one massive, confused tower of Babel. One author, evangelical author, said he expects, if we are indeed moving more and more toward this era, expects to see more and more mergers between denominations and more emphasis on ecumenism, ecumenism, is a word that simply refers to the effort to merge all the world's religions into one giant world religion. So what do you have to do to do that? Get rid of doctrine. Get rid of any theology and basically say, well, we'll all unite around this, whatever that may be. Well, here it comes. All it takes is for the bride of Christ to disappear and the world will, in a very brief period of time, without the salt and light of the gospel, run together. Say, finally, we are one at last. I want you to notice, secondly, her partnerships. Look at verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names. This woman, of course, is the harlot, this false religious system. Sitting on this beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've already learned that the empire of the Antichrist will be the seventh world empire, the revived Roman empire. It'll be made up of a coalition of ten kings. These are the ten toes of Daniel's vision, that image, the last world empire. We're not going to take time because we already have to go through these descriptive phrases in chapter 17 regarding the Antichrist's kingdom. However, there is one key verse that we haven't addressed in our studies that I want to show you. It's verse 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now this is a reference to seven hills, and this particular reference to seven hills causes some to believe that this woman, this system of false religion, is the Roman Catholic Church, since Rome sits on what? Seven hills. Well, not only is that viewpoint in my mind wrong, it's far too restricted for all of the world to come under the banner of Roman Catholicism in this one world church. What makes me even more convinced that that isn't true is that the Bible goes on to say even more about this. In fact, there's not a comma or a period at the end of that phrase I read, but a comma. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, comma. He continues on by saying, and they, these seven hills, are what? Seven kings. You could render that seven kingdoms. In other words, these seven hills are seven kings or kingdoms. Well, who are they? John, John gives us the answer. Five have fallen. One is 
and the other is not yet come. And you say, thanks, John, that's so helpful. I know exactly now what you mean. Well, you understand it if you understand this metaphor is, is one of hills being empires. Five have come and gone. Who are they? Well, study world history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece have come and gone. John says, one of those empires is, present tense. When was John writing? During the reign of what? The Roman Empire. And he says, one has yet to come. There's one beyond Rome. We know it to be this final world empire, the revival of the Roman Empire, this ten toes of the image Daniel prophesied of. But guess what that means? Now here we are in the 21st century. You know what this means? There is only one more empire to come. We have seen six come and go. There's only one left. The revived Roman Empire ruled by the Antichrist. We're closer than ever before, aren't we? We're living in that moment in human history when the next world empire ruled by a man will be the last to be ruled by a man. The one following that is the one ruled by the God-man, our King, Jesus Christ. Now the fact that this harlot is seen riding on the beast is John's way of saying that she's partnering with it, the Antichrist. In fact, there are some that believe that there's an implication here that she's actually controlling the beast. And I believe that's true. And the Antichrist isn't going to put up with it for very long, as we'll see in a moment. Thirdly, I want you to notice her wealth. Notice her wealth. The wealth of this unified religion. Verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. All this is to say she's just extremely wealthy. Purple and scarlet clothing, by the way, were the most expensive clothing you could wear in John's day. Millions of certain small sea snails that emitted a purple dye would have to be harvested in the Mediterranean region to make enough dye to to dye cloth purple. In John's day, one ounce of purple dye was worth more than one pound of gold. So all that to say, this religion that captures the attention of the world will be immensely elaborate. The buildings will be stunning. It will be incredibly wealthy. And I find it interesting, if you look back at that verse, that this woman is decked out in things that heaven will have in abundance, right? Gold, precious stones, pearls. She's got got a few of them, maybe a string of pearls. Maybe some gold rings on her fingers. Some precious stones, uh, perhaps. Uh, She's she's decked out in, in that which, by the way, when compared to heaven, will make her look like she just has a few trinkets. I remember playing with my youngest daughter, Charity, when she was a little girl, most often time uh, in the evening, that little game, Pretty Pretty Princess. How many of you have played that game? Look at the hands everywhere. Uh, You probably don't want to admit you did. I'm doing it publicly. But that's where you pushed a little board piece ahead, and if you got to a certain place, you'd be able to pull out of this box a big plastic earring, a clip-on earring. 
it looked dazzling. He'd go a little further along, you get another earring, and he put that one on. And then you get the necklace, and then you even get a little crown. And if you win, and I, I won oftentimes, <laughs> I, was, I was completely decked out. My wife took pictures of me completely decked out in this jewelry, which is a scary picture now that I look at it, and you'll never see it ever, ever, I hope. But you know, to a little kid, that, that stuff, that plastic, that, that was dazzling. Wow. And she'd look at me and say, pretty, pretty princess. <laughs> and if she won, I'd say to her, pretty, pretty princess. Well, you know, to them, it's just amazing. Listen, heaven is going to make the jewelry of this false religion look like plastic junk, trinkets, when we see the glory of heaven. Notice, fourthly, her perversion. Verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Now unfolded, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. In other words, it all started with mother Babylon. It all began with her, the source of organized rebellion and creature worship and universe adoration and astral devotion and demon inspired idolatry and on and on it goes back to Babylon. She is the mother of spiritual prostitution, worship that ought to belong to God, but is given to another. And it says here that her name is on her forehead. It's interesting to me to learn in John's day that the common prostitute in the first century, and it was a legal flourishing trade, wore her name on a scarf on her head or on a colorful headband. This was how she advertised what profession she was in. The other way she advertised was by braiding her hair and exposing her, her back. That's why Paul would come along later and tell the women in the New Testament church, don't braid your hair. In other words, don't look like a prostitute. So the, the principle is timeless, though braiding hair certainly is all right in this culture. Her name is on her forehead. It's how she advertised. This was her effort to be remembered so that she could be called upon again. By name. So the spiritual harlot here seeks to be remembered and desired. But it won't work after all. Let me quickly show you, fifth, her agenda. Verse six And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. You boil it all down, and basically you got this she hates God and she hates the people of God. That's why when the world talks about tolerance, It can speak of tolerance with every religion, but it cannot be tolerant with us as Christians. They hate us. There's something about us because of whom we represent. Isn't it true? Well, by the time of the the tribulation here, the woman is actually portrayed as drunk. She's drunk. She She is totally inebriated. She's saturated with the blood of the believer. Horrific expression. And it will reach horrific stages as we've already seen in our study of the tribulation days where she will put to death millions of believers. Finally, number six, I want you to notice her ultimate destruction. Verse 16. Go to verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, this false religion, and will make her desolate and naked, will eat her flesh and will burn her up. With fire. Put simply, the Ten Kingdom Federation and the Antichrist 
will reach a point where they will have no need of her anymore. She served her purpose. Antichrist now unveils his image, desecrates the holy place. The one world church will be replaced. Many believe around the latter part of the tribulation period where the Antichrist will claim to be God and set himself up to be worshipped alone. He will not allow anybody to worship one more star. He won't stand for anybody worshipping the moon. They will not be allowed to worship the sun. They will not be allowed to worship anything, a stump or an animal. They will be forced to worship him. So he's got to get rid of this help, this helper. And so John tells us, we could spend a sermon unpacking this, but very quickly he basically says that what the Antichrist is going to do is he's going to rob her. He's going to take all of her assets, her wealth. He's going to disgrace her. Maybe expose her hypocrisies. He's going to devour her and destroy her. More than likely, the straw that breaks the camel's back will be some claim by her to rule. The church will rule the state and he will say, no, I will rule both church and state. And everyone will worship me. Where's God in these wretched days of blasphemy? Are things out of hand? Let me close by reading verse 17 and just a comment or two. Don't miss this. For God put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Listen, the return of mankind to Babylon and to the religion of Babel, confusion, is part of the plan of God. In this final showdown, this final conflict between the city of man and the city of God, the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of Christ. It's fascinating then to consider that from Genesis to Revelation, the purposes of God are being played out. You can bank on it. You can depend upon it. He is the author of it all. For those of us who believe in him, even our lives now, no matter what the struggle, no matter the suffering, the chaos, the conflict, God's purposes for you will be fulfilled perfectly, on time, and ultimately, we will be part of this final scene as the city of Jerusalem defeats once and for all the city of Babylon and our king takes his rightful place on the throne of David. 